Thank you. Are we all mic'd? Good morning. Thank you, Randy. Thank you, Junior McGarrahan. McGarrahan. Did I say that right? Thank you so much. It's uh, a great pleasure to be here. I walked into the elevator this morning with uh, Dr. and Mrs. Elving Anderson. I said, now I know I'm really in trouble. Uh, thank you, because you are my heroes. Why do I say that? I say that because you are doing what I want the rest of the evangelical world to do, which is to bridge these worlds of faith and science in new ways. Uh, let me begin by uh, also telling the following story for a reason. It's uh, the story of an evangelical who gets into his drives over Hill and Dale, he slams on his brakes, he walks over to the shepherd who's quietly tending his flock, and he says, sir, he says, if I can tell you how many sheep you have, can I have one? The shepherd's totally dumbstruck, doesn't know what to say. He says, oh, of course. So the American evangelical goes back into his Jeep. He gets on GPS, I call that God's positioning satellite, and within a matter of moments, he has a ream of papers. He walks over to the shepherd, and he says, you have 1,638 sheep. And the shepherd says, that's totally amazing. How did you know? Go pick one out. So the American evangelical goes, picks one out, puts it into his Jeep chair. He's driving away when the shepherd runs up, knocks on his window, and he says, sir, he says, if I can tell you what you do for a living, can I have my sheep back? And the American says, yes, of course. And the shepherd says, you are a consultant. The American says, how in the world did you ever know? And the shepherd says, well, it's very simple. He says, you come into my world, you don't know anything. You give me answers to questions I've not asked. <laughs> Leave out, charge me a lot of money. And he says, lastly but not least, he says, you don't know diddly squat. You took my sheep dog. <laughs> I have told that story. I've told that story to the Ayatollahs of Iran that were meeting in Villa Graziola, not far from the Vatican, uh, where we went to meet Pope Benedict. And they laughed. And the rabbis of Israel have laughed, and so have the Chinese and others. And so I take it that it's a universal phenomenon. <laughs> now, I don't tell it just to hopefully get you to chuckle a little bit. Uh, it's rather to make a point. And the point is this, I would ask you to be a consultant in the fratricide of the American debate over a variety of issues. Consultants. Now, uh, I have been one and I'm often misunderstood and I liken it to the story of the young children who they uh, are asked what did they learn from Sunday school and they said, well, when Moses led the Israelis, Israelis out of Egypt. Uh, all the Egyptians drowned in the desert. And uh, Moses went up to Mount Sinai, and he came down with the Ten Amendments. But he died before he got to Canada. And when Mary was with child, she sang the Magna Carta. So that's what happens in this town when you talk theology and politics. People get confused about what you've said. And I certainly have had that experience. Uh, 
I would like to show you this nine-minute DVD, Get Started Right Away, not so much to persuade you of anything, although there is a point of view in the DVD, as you will soon see, entitled What If? The question is asked at the beginning by Keanu Reeves. You'll get it, uh, and then we'll try to answer it. So without any more ado, let's play it. And try and set aside, if you have opinions about the issue of the movie, to see it rather as an opportunity, an introduction to the challenge that we face, because I'm not going to talk about climate change. That's Jim Ball's opportunity this afternoon. I want to talk to you overcoming our past and a failure of nerve. Because I want to communicate most of all that what we need today in this environment is nerve. So, the movie. Oh, one last comment. Please excuse a little bit of uh, self-promotion. It wasn't something I did. It was prepared by Environment Canada, paid for by them, and uh, produced by Stonehill Productions in Montreal. And so, if I'm in it, please excuse that. <laughs> We need a consultant. <laughs> we also need leaders who can chart for the future. And I would like to say that at this university, Catholic University, I'm reminded of the words of G.K. Chesterton. Now, you may know the story of Chesterton, who was born in 1874 to Unitarians. And he soon saw 
the consequences of acculturated Christianity, acculturated kind of Christianity, if you will, in Unitarianism, which he thought would not answer the questions of his day, the ills of the modern world. And at the age of 48, in 1922, he was received into the Catholic Church 14 years before his death in 1936. And what G.K. Testerton said 100 years ago, I would suggest, is very important and relevant for us today. Because what he said was, in this day and age, he wrote then, in which you have a contest between what was then, he said, between hyper-rationalism and hyper-emotivism, he said, the only answer to that conundrum, which I will flesh out in just a moment, was the church. And what he said was, the only corner where people in any sense look forward is that little continent where Christ has his church. Fascinating. He says, the only place where people in any sense look forward is that little continent where Christ has his church. He attacked both hyper-rationalism, first of all. Now, this was no attack on reason because he said reason itself is a matter of faith. And hyper-emotivism on the other. He said the first is filled with false pride, the latter with false humility. He said it's because unlike lunatic rationalists who believe they know everything, Mad emotivists, let's call them postmodernists, deny they know anything, loathe to make any ethical claims of any kind. So we're on the road, he wittily wrote, to produce a race of men too, and women too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication tables. <laughs> All of our seeing is indeed subjective, that's right, and culture bound. We behold the world through the lenses of our own conceptions and assumptions, and all truth is filtered and sieved with no view being from nowhere, he wrote, with no godlike perch. And so, Kepasa, what do we do? He said, it, it is absolutely essential that we make comparative moral judgments, engage in these time-transcending religious arguments, and to simply say that there is no place to make this judgment, you see, against the emotivists, the postmodernists, who say there is no trans narrative that will explain anything, nor to, does he say, can we content ourselves with the hyper-rationalists, those with false pride, who say, oh, it's only through the senses that we can know truth. And both, he says, as I suspect Francis Collins said last night, by the way, talk about punishment, <laughs> following him. But both, you see, are wrong. Fascinatingly enough, G.K. Chesterton says, what is the cure for the first? He says it is, can you guess? Any guesses? He says the cure is imagination to see the world as it is. In other words, not as two separate realms, the visible and the invisible, the literal and the figurative, the natural and the supernatural. No, no, no. He says, the cosmos, cosmos, for God so loved the cosmos, 
He gave us his son. The cosmos invites us instead, he said, to discern those spheres as mysteriously, even, even miraculously overlapping and intersecting. And then he said something that was totally a conundrum still to me. I still don't fathom it entirely. He said, Adam and Eve failed the test of imagination because they clung to a univocal understanding of the world. They were the first fundamentalists and hyper-rationalists. Would you have thought that? The cure, you see, is not just to have the imagination to see the world as it really is. On the one hand, we say to our fellow scientists, as I've said to my friends, E.O. Wilson and Eric Shivian, to see the world as it really is, we challenge them. And then to those on, well, on this side, I was corrected by one scientist and psychologist who said, now, these aren't the emotionalists, these are the emotivists. And I said, but many of them are the emotionalists. And she said, right. And to them, you see, those who uh, reject in postmodernism any narrative, any transcending truth, the cure is a, quote, Chesterton wrote, decisive liberty, the liberty to bind myself. Oh, wow. Discipline and fidelity, oaths and obligations are the means to joy. And so we are going to have to decide. I came across this hymn the other day. The first part of it I will read. To us in every nation, written in 1854, and it begins as follows. To us in every nation comes a moment to decide. In the strife of truth with falsehood, falsehood, for the good or evil side, some great cause, some modern prophet offering each the bloom or bright and the choice goes by forever twixt that darkness and that light. What we have to do, I would suggest to all of you, is be consultants to this world that is not just, you see, caught up in hyper-rationalism on the one hand and hyper-emotivism on the other and find our way in this little continent that looks forward, called the church. Fair enough? Are you with me? Okay. I just came from the Aspen Environmental, uh, Aspen Environmental Forum. Now, the scientists gathered there uh, became riled up at one moment on a panel on the Anthropocene. Now, the scientists were arguing. I was invited, I guess, to be the uh, theologian or the moralist. But anyway, what, what has changed? We know from Bob Doppel, for example, he's a scientist. He is uh, a climatologist and all the rest, as well as a behavioral psychologist. And Doppel says we're at this transcending, defining moment in which because of the shift of power and energy... We're at this new world, and we're going to have to choose. You see, whether we can make the shift in our thinking, perception, and behavior, make the shift to this new way of thinking that's going to be required to live in the 21st century, is what Doppelt argues. And we're going to need a new sustainable way of thinking, he argues in his book, The Power of Sustainable Thinking. The question is, can we? Interestingly enough, in this group of scientists at Aspen, the Aspen Times, the next day, expert 
colon is the headline. Win climate change debate by easing off of science. And so what precipitated an uproar in this panel on the Anthropocene, which the scientists say began around the year 1900, maybe 1945, from the Holocene to the Anthropocene, what Jonathan Foley said was that the battle to get Americans to accept the science behind, behind climate change has been lost. That's the opening paragraph. And what Foley argues is that leaders on climate change need to concentrate on changing behavior in ways that appeal to people and also happen to reduce carbon emissions. He says, we've lost. It's over. Forget it. You can imagine what precipitated that reaction. But he said, I like to walk into rooms like that addressing conservatives, trying to win them over, and say, forget about climate change. Do you love America? So what he's arguing is essentially what I also argued on the panel, is that we have to reframe this. Now, I don't believe it's technically an either-or question. We obviously need the science, but we also need a new framing. And the reason we need a new framing Foley understands is that the skepticism around climate change has created a trap for us, Foley said. Stop digging yourselves into the hole. Get out of it. Talk about it in a different way. Reframe the issue. Hmm. And so what Foley is confronting is the fact that we have a skepticism towards science. We know on the one hand. Andy Crouch has argued in Christianity Today that the victim of the origins debate is climate science. You follow what he's saying? Aha, that was Andy. To flesh it out just for one moment, he said, American evangelicals reject climate change science because scientists are evolutionists. Evolutionists are saying it, so I'm going to reject it. And the victim then of this debate becomes climate science. And so Foley's arguing, reframe. Now our movie. You think it'll work? If not, no guarantees.
Great Depression, they were living in the time of the Great War. Their lives were never the same. Over 20 years ago, scientists began raising the world. Our atmosphere's delicate interplay with temperature and moisture should be on balance. But this was more than blue rays and storms. The cycles and systems that define our global climate were changing faster than ever before. For the past 5,000 years, Earth's climate has been unusually placid, enabling us to spread across six continents, and making us believe that we can survive in almost any environment. Our habitat has been stable just long enough for us to learn how to disrupt it through agriculture, the domestication of animals for food and labor. Right through the Bible, right through into 
Testament and Jesus, and thousands of that steward, stewardship. I'm going away, said he, but you've got to look after them, and you've got to look after the people in it. Far from the megachurches of Colorado, California, and the South, is someone who may be just what the doctor ordered. In fact, Matthew Sleep is a doctor. I was an emergency room physician and had been for a decade and a half. And I began to notice uh, the number of uh, patients who had diseases that were environmentally related. Um, when I was a child, no one had asthma. Today, many, many people had asthma. Um, when I started medicine, uh, the, the textbook said about one in 19 women would get breast cancer. Now it's about one in 10. And I began to feel like I was scraping deck chairs on the Titanic, and that if I really cared about health, I was going to have to um, think a little bit more globally. And um, uh, I also felt a calling from God to, um, to expand my mission. Two years ago, his police made some dramatic changes. He quit his job and moved the family to a much smaller community. Again, he began studying both the faith and the science he'd grown up with. Science is certainly a part, of, a vital part of, of my thinking. Faith comes in when I say, what should I do about it personally? What do I owe the future? And how, how can I be a part of the right decisions now? In his new role as a religious educator, Matthew's first audiences have ranged from church and college groups to kids from the local community. How long is it? Don't the tree huggers put nature above God? I've heard a lot of Christians who have said that the end of the world is coming anyway, so it shouldn't really matter what we want. Or, I want our earth wants us there would be back in the human race, but that this huge employment is going to be being really prominent for us. How do you know who we go? So let's think of that from totally from the terms of Christianity. And as a church, what can we do to help out and reduce global warming? An example I frequently give is that um, the, if every household in the United States changed five light bulbs, compact fluorescents, we could take 21 coal-powered plants offline tomorrow, and that would be the same as taking 8 million cars off the road, 1 trillion fewer pounds of greenhouse gases, and thousands fewer deaths. So we can save lives tomorrow just by changing light bulbs. Millions upon millions of ordinary people do care, especially the young. Alongside the great warning, they are going to change the world. We need to identify what the new vision is, what the alternatives to our current destructive lifestyles are. And I'm particularly interested in asking young people this question, what do you want for the future? Because this is a big challenge, and we have to be innovative, inventive, and really tackle this problem. What makes today's climate change unique in human history is more than just its science, and far more than its heat and its worthy. The potential of climate change to alter and degrade life on our planet presents us with profound moral choices in the way we lead our lives, and it challenges us to create a truly sustainable future for the Earth.
First of all, I want to thank uh, the National Association of Evangelicals for that. Thank you, Galen, giving us permission here. Galen is uh, my successor at the NAE, and I'm proud of him. Thank you. When I went to Oxford, you saw Sir John in the movie. I went there saying to my friend Jim Ball, I said, don't expect me to sign any statements. Don't expect me to come back and be an advocate for climate change because, quite frankly, the evangelicals are divided, and I don't think they need me in that debate. I listened to the evidence, and I came away persuaded, in part, that I had to speak out. We went to Blenheim Palace, which is just a few miles from Oxford, where the meeting was held, where among the speakers were N.T. Wright, the evangelical theologian, the Bishop of Durham, we went to Blenheim Palace, walked in the gardens out back, and Sir John said to me, well, Richard, if you are persuaded, you can't but speak out. And I said, do you know that some of my board members and of others have said, don't go? And I'm sure they'll say, don't speak out. I did. Because the truths that I came across in those days and the following days were that aside from the science... By, by the way, there is disputation about the science. So please don't uh, argue with the video as much as to hear my point. That we need to do, as the young woman in the movie says, articulate a vision for the next generation. And what is that vision? You missed the opening in which Keanu Reeves says, what if? We live in a planet where millions of species and land, water, and air thrive. And one of those species becomes so powerful that it threatens all the rest. What if? What do we do? I think the answer into this debate and all the rest that's going on in this fractious society of ours in which we can't come to political resolution here in Washington because, as you know, the climate bill has been set aside. And we may not get one even in the Obama administration because of this great debate. But there is this vision that's even more important than what happens on Capitol Hill. And it's articulated by N.T. Wright in his book, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection and the Mission of the Church, Surprised by Hope, in which he says he made the first Articulation of what this book is, Surprised by Hope, at those meetings led by EEN. The president is here. He made his first presentation, N.T. Wright did, saying, quite frankly, he said, and he wrote in the book, Plato remains the most influential thinker in the history of the Western world, in which he goes on to write, the writer and playwright Stuart Holderwright himself, an unabashed apologist for Gnosticism, you see, says that Plato's ideas that the present world of space, time, and nature is a world of illusion, of flickering shadows in a cave, and the most appropriate human task is to get in touch with the true reality, which is beyond space and time and matter. And for Plato, this was the reality of the eternal forms, and that has taken the form in writings eclectic, though they may be, according to Holyrod, as reflected in Gnosticism, whose advocates he lists as Blake, Goethe, Melville, Yeats, Jung, among others, representing this stream in the modern West. It should be no surprise, he writes, that certain elements of the Romantic movement and some of their more recent heirs have prone to this as well. Fueling, you see, 
a reinterpretation of Christianity in terms of the supposedly original Gnostic spirituality that contrasts sharply with the concrete kingdom of God on earth announced by Jesus of the canonical gospels. So that we even have today, he writes, this outrageous conspiracy theory like unto the Da Vinci Code. Ah, and he says, for the modern evangelical, a good many Christian hymns and poems wander off unthinkingly in the direction of Gnosticism, the just passing through spirituality as in this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Do you recognize that? And so he says, this vision that we have to articulate is to move this massive assumption that has been made that the purpose of being a Christian is simply or at least mainly to go to heaven when you die. Now, he says the texts don't say that. They mention just the opposite, such as Romans 8, 18 to 25 and Revelation 21 to 22 chapters therein. But they're screened out as if they don't exist, N.T. writes. And so... Secularists rightly criticize Christianity, he says, for contributing to ecological disaster. And there's more than a grain of truth to this, he says. And I've heard it argued in North America that since God intends to destroy the present time universe and moreover, since he intends to do it quite soon, it really doesn't matter whether we emit twice the amount of greenhouse gases. I heard it this morning. I was turning to family radio this morning in order to get the great hymns of the faith, because I'm sorry, I don't like some of the modern hymns, I turned to family radio, and they announced, as they have been for a long time now, that on May 21st, 2011, Judgment Day will begin, and there will be five months of tribulation, and the world will end. This is true, they say. And so, yes, we evangelicals have a serious, serious problem and what is the new vision? I can't say it any better than he says it. So I'll read M.T. Wright. He says, the whole point of my, mar my argument in the book is that the question of what happens to me after death is not the major central framing question that centuries of theological tradition have imposed. The New Testament True to its Old Testament roots, regularly insists the major central framing question is that of God's purpose of rescue and recreation of the whole world, the entire cosmos. And so he says, our purpose is to teach, you see, this reframing question that it's our role with God in the creation, redemption, and renewal, and our partnership with him, that is the central framing question. That is the vision. And you have an unlikely role in reaching out to scientists. Now, let me tell you the story of Winsome McIntosh, who has worked tirelessly in this town for over 30 years, running the McIntosh Foundation, heir of A&P money, I should say. She wouldn't mind me saying so, her husband, and, and she have been wonderful philanthropists to the movement. And so she heard me speaking out. She called me up one day and said, Richard, would you like to have a cup of coffee? And I said, sure, and we did. And she then began to introduce me to these scientists whose names you've heard from me and many others over the last few years. When I asked her, though, at the end of my tenure at NAE, what did you think when you called me would happen? And Winsome said, she said, frankly, I was afraid. I said, afraid? You're not afraid of anything, Winsome. She said, I was. I was afraid 
you would try to evangelize me. And I said, well, did I? And she says, yes, but not in the way I thought. And she said, you persuaded me that these evangelicals really are the answer. Now, that is the vision, I would say, in my final moment, so we can have a moment or two if you want of Q&A, a reframing of this whole debate. What is the vision? By the way, without a vision, the people perish. And I think the evangelical church, you see, needs a vision. And like unto Abraham, who didn't know where he was going, but in Genesis 12, he was given a mandate to take that vision and go forward. And our vision today is to do this, the whole gospel vision that includes this relationship with science to challenge the great questions of our time. And it's not just climate change. The twin Armageddons, I say, include nuclear terror. And so it's my privilege to be a part of a new movie out called Countdown to Zero in which the producers and directors articulate how close we are and have come to nuclear terrorism. And we need a partnership in order to address that as well. And so those are great challenges, including that of human rights, genocide, poverty, and all of these issues. And so we need a vision, you see, that is holistic, not narrow, that is loving, not angry, that is, you see, healing, not divisive. And most of all, it's not subservient to any ideology or partisanship. But above that, that is the vision that we have to articulate. And we will win people over, the secularists, I'm convinced, by that kind of a vision. Now, I'm a bit the political scientist, and they will say in this town, you have to have a vision and you have to have a strategy. And so I say, second of all, second of all you've got to have a strategy too, because a vision without one is a hallucination. And we're not hallucinating, are we here? And that strategy is to bring these sides together. That's what we did at Melhana, which Randy spoke of. And you play this role of bringing these sides together and of being a consultant, if you will, to the secularists who say those evangelicals are just off the face of the earth. The right side. You know, that's what they think. And so you stand in this critical role in between who can address both the hyper-rationalists as well as the hyper-emotivists and the postmodernists, as well as the Christians who have it wrong. And so you must do this. But the real challenge is, I would say, to the entire evangelical leadership, as well as to you here this morning, is if this is the strategy coming together, and by the way, the reason it is so critically important is because, as Gus Speth has written the following, 30 years ago, by the way, he's the head of, until recently retiring, the Center for Environment at Yale School of Forestry and Environment. He wrote, 30 years ago, I thought with, with enough good science, we would be able to solve the environmental crisis. I was wrong. I used to think that the greatest problems threatening the planet were pollution, biodiversity, loss, and climate change, and I was wrong there too. I now believe the greatest problems, can you guess, any offerings, are pride apathy and greed and because that's what's keeping us from solving the environmental problem pride apathy and greed for that i now see that we need a cultural and a spiritual transformation and we in the scientific community don't know how to do that but you evangelicals do and we need your help you follow what i'm saying of course you do and that's what happened you see to me 
the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the tightening of the throat, the rising of the hair on my arms, the watering of the eyes. And how could I have been so blind? This so many years, I accepted the admonitions of those who said, no, we don't go there. And yet, you see, having stayed in the home in Arlington when he lived in Washington of Carl Ferdinand Howard Henry, Carl F.H. Henry, and having known his son, Paul, who died at a very young age as a congressman from the 5th District of Grand Rapids, as well as the home of Frank Gabeline, who lived right down the road. You know, there were debates between Frank Gabeline and Carl Henry, and they used to have them quite vociferously over the dinner table, which I, this young kid of recent seminary, meant listened in on and wondered. And yet, both men would say, together we can do this. With the authority, the God revelation and authority, as Henry wrote, as well as the evangelical mind that Gabeline said, we can do this. But I would suggest to you, the question is, will we? And do we have the nerve? Now, the third part of this is the tactics. See, I think Jesus, in his conversation with Pilate, said it so well for time and eternity. When Pilate said, don't you know I have the power to release you or to crucify you? And Jesus said, you have meekly at first, and then he speaks, he says, don't you know? You see, you have no authority except it be given you from above. And so we have this mandate that goes from Genesis to Revelation, but we've transferred the fiduciary responsibility to care and to protect to politicians and to others, and then we've given them a free ride, I would say, and not holding them accountable. And so the strategy has to be like Jesus saying to the pilots of our day, you have no authority except it be given you from above. And that means you will be held accountable. Now, people say, oh, Rich is saying too much when he quotes Revelation eleven eighteen, I will destroy those who destroy the earth. By the way, Cal DeWitt tells the story of approaching Billy Graham with that. Graham said, I don't know that verse. And Cal says, he challenged him to preach on it. And to, my, to his knowledge and mine, he never did. But you see, the new evangelicalism of the 21st century, you see, has to hold out just as Finney and others did in their day to an obligation in their time, which was against slavery. I would say the civil rights issue of the 21st century are these issues of climate change and the like. And we have to say beyond simply receive Christ, we have to say, here's your obligation and challenge people. But do we have the nerve? And in this wonderful book I read after my departure from NAE, I wish I had it before, by Edwin H. Friedman, A Failure of Nerve, he says that this vision, he writes, is not simply cerebral. It is emotional. And what he's saying is that the captains courageous, who are not necessarily brilliant, learned or noble, that is Verrazano, Vespucci, Columbus, possessed, you see, what he calls nerve. And you see, they had it especially because this leadership quality of vision, uh, because they had no way, you see, to stay in touch with base 
And it wasn't for fame, you see, or fortune that they did this. They did it, you see, because they had a vision. And so as leaders, I would challenge you, as he does in his book, for self-differentiation, which is a universal emotional phenomenon, not a social science category, he says. And there are these aspects, I'll simply list them, of this new kind of vision that will lead our civilization into the new world. He says, a capacity to get outside the emotional climate of the day. Vision is generally thought of as cerebral, he writes, but the ability to see things differently and the effect of our ability on one's functioning, whether in science, art, exploration, or the concentration camps, is an emotional phenomenon. It's having some sense of where you begin and end and where others in your life end. It's a willingness to be exposed and vulnerable, a fear you see of standing out, we all have, and it's overcoming that. It's persistence in the fear, face of fear and resistance and downright rejection. And he says, the resistant leaders, the resistance leaders meet also comes as well, not just from the outside, it comes from the inside, in which that voice constantly asks, how can you have a right and everyone else be crazy? Have you ever felt that way? And lastly, he says, it's stamina in the face of sabotage along the way, and then living, quote, headstrong and ruthless, at least in the eyes of others. By the way, he says, these leaders, they did not manipulate others, but in binds where they had to choose between continuing a relationship and giving up their goals. They stuck to their goals over even team-building consensus and camaraderie. And so, you know, the flaws and the likes of Prince Henry, the Navigator, Columbus, da Gama, the Cabots, Cartier, Magellan, Drake. You see, all of these men had that kind of vision, and I would say that's the kind of vision we have to have. Those are the tactics to proceed apace. And one last story that was told by none other than Paul Henry, because he was a legislator. And in fact, David Broder said that he was more qualified to be president growing up. Paul Henry, he wrote. Then you see the man from the same district in Grand Rapids, Gerald Ford. But Paul Henry used to say to all of the student groups that N.A. had here, and he always accepted the invitation, he said, it's true, he said, weapons designed to defend become weapons of war. Environmental programs designed to protect, they do the opposite. Poverty programs designed to free and slave. And he said, and yet we must choose and it's often a tragic moral choice, as Edward John Carnell wrote, a tragic moral choice between, he, between these two difficult options. And he said, we must nevertheless choose. And he likened it to the choice of King Darius. Now, everybody knows the story of Daniel, chapter 9, from the point of Daniel, but not from the point of Darius, who Henry likened himself to. And Henry said, Darius, you see, had to choose. And to make a long story short, he said, save the man or the empire, because the satraps wanted to take down Darius, not just Daniel, the Jewish servant who prayed. By the way, that's a tactic, if there ever was, in your window praying. But he had to choose, Darius did, between saving his friend Daniel and sacrificing the empire he was trying to create in the 6th and 7th century BC, or, you see, sacrificing his friend to save the empire. And I would say to you, as a product of 30 years in this town, there are a lot of people with a lot of money 
who are more than willing to save their friends and sacrifice not just the empire, America, if you will, but the entire planet. They're willing to do that by their, you see, their miscalculation, by their failure to anticipate the black swans that come across their path, such as we found evidenced in the Gulf of Mexico. You see, they were willing to overlook the risks for pursuit of the profit that they have gained. And yet the question is, what is the future then for BP? And is there not a prophecy, I will destroy those who destroy the earth? Sometimes it's us. We are the ones who, in destroying the earth, you see, by our failure to rewire our minds, rewire the grid, absolutely, I tell the science, but rewire our passions. We have to rewire our expectations, rewire, you see, the way we live and think to a new sustainable way, moving from take, make, and waste to borrow, use, and replenish. That's the shift. And can we as people, as leaders, do this? And will we have the nerve? I'll read in closing the last bits of to us and all and every nation for your consideration in closing. Then decide with truth is noble when we share its wretched crust. Ere the cause bring fame and profit and tis prosperous to be just then it is the brave one chooses while the coward stands aside till the multitude make virtue of the faith they had denied. Though the cause of evil prosper, yes, tis truth alone is strong. Though its portion be the scaffold and upon the throne be wrong, yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown, there stands God within the shadow, keeping watch above God's. Amen and amen. Thank you very much. It's time for two questions. I couldn't agree with you more. We accrue the spiritual consequences of our choices. Now, the impacts are going to be felt on the poor first. But in a physical sense, because of desertification and the like, the king of Morocco flew me out into the desert to see those changes, which are resulting, you see, in mass migration through North Africa into Europe. Those impacts are going to be felt on the poor. And so 
The EEN, of which I serve on the board, is saying we have to articulate this in terms of the poor because evangelicals will identify that way. But we have to understand, I couldn't agree more, that the impacts are being felt on us if we don't rewire our greed and apathy and pride, as Gus Beth wrote. I think creation care is that vision for each and every church. And as it witnesses to that, it wins a hearing from the secularists and others who say, as, as they have faulted us, you see, of not caring. And so I think the vision is both. It has to be both for this community to lead the way, but it also has to be for every layman and laywoman to realize that partnership with God for the recreation, redemption, and renewal. That is, that, that is what each and every one of us must live. And it challenges us. Believe me, I look at myself every day. I'm reminded uh, it was G.K. Chesterton who was asked, what's the greatest problem in the world today? And he answered, I am. Great. Thank you very much.